0: Hey everyone, thanks so much for checking out Bible Unbound. Hey, I noticed that there were a ton of new people that came on over the past couple of weeks, which is fantastic. Thank you so much for being here. If you're confused at all at what we're doing here, then that's totally okay. This isn't technically a serialized podcast, meaning you don't technically have to go all the way back to the beginning, although it might help. If you just want an on-ramp, here's the rundown. We are going from Genesis to Revelation, looking out for the theme of the snake crusher prophesied in Genesis 3.15. God says that from the seed of the woman will come a man to crush the head of the snake. And so we're looking out for the themes in the books of the Old and New Testaments to see just how the snake crusher will come about in the world. And presumably that will be one of our main characters here. So we're holding them up to scrutiny to see their rise and fall and see how they hold up. Either way, here's today's episode. Hey everyone, my name is Austin. Thanks so much for checking into Bible Unbound this week. We're setting off to explore the beautiful world of the Song of Solomon. And before that, I'm gonna let you guys in to one of the most embarrassing moments of my entire life. When someone asks this question, this is the story I give and I can still remember what the room sounded like, looked like, smelled like, as I sat there in my small bodied humiliation. You see, I was small probably around fourth grade, when I was sitting in my dad's classroom. My dad was a drama teacher at the K through 12 school that my brothers and I attended. And after school, he held an improv club where all the coolest of the cool high school students would get together and put on high school improv skits. I thought I was the coolest cat on the block. The a wee little fourth grader sitting in on this prestigious ceremony of high school improv. There was a game. It was called Hot, Not, or Nerd. And the objective of the game was to guess who was who. Each person within the scene was given a title, hot, not, or nerd, and the audience would pick a place and a time. Perhaps it was lunchtime in the Mesozoic era, or maybe the trenches of World War II. Who knew where we were going, but I was strapped in and ready to guess who was playing the hot one, who was playing the not one, and who was the nerd. After the scene took place, My father would hover his hand over the select individual, and the whole classroom would erupt in a cacophony of votes, cheers, whoops, hollers. Most of the time, I was too busy trying to act cool around all the adult high schoolers to vote, or at least voting whatever they said, but there was this one time where I was so certain of who was who that the second My dad's outstretched palm crowned the cranium of the coolest high school girl in the improv club. I shouted as loud as my small fourth grade lungs would allow. She's the hot one! She's the hot one! It was in that moment where I realized, to my shock and horror, no one else had breathed a word. Dead silence filled the room and my mind as the echoes of my voice She's bounced the hot off one. the walls. She's the hot one. Then. The entire classroom erupted in a cacophony of laughter and pointed fingers. The people I admired most in my life doubled over in laughter. I burst into tears and ran into my dad's office. Don't you wish you could have done things differently? I'm sure Adam and Eve do. <laughs> I'm sure if you asked them decades later, they might have even found the God-given humor in the situation, like I do with that story just then. And yes, eventually my dad came in and gave me food, and a bunch of the cool high schoolers came and told me I was cool. Everything was just fine, but at the time, I am certain that Adam and Eve wished they would have done things differently. Shoot, I mean, when I look around at my world today, I wish Adam and Eve had done things differently. It seems to me that the biblical authors felt the same way. There are several instances we get throughout the scriptures of these kind of alternate Adam and Eves who are put in these situations to test whether they would have done things differently or not. Abraham and Sarah, David and Bathsheba, Job and his wife. So we've seen this trope play out a couple of different times in a couple of different ways. There's a man and a woman united together, failing God. Honestly, it sounds like I'd win an Oscar for Best Director, but when we get to the Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs, we get another alternate Adam and Eve, only this time it's as though they never messed up. The book opens with the line, quote, a song of songs, which is Solomon's. Now, this gives us a ton of information right there for for one a song of songs it's like lord of lords or king of kings it means it's the best of the thing It's the best song of all the songs, and it just so happens that it's written by Solomon. Now, whether Solomon actually wrote it is a different story, but what it tells us is that it will likely have something to do with his kingship, or you should have his kingship, his story. The Solomon episode should be playing in the back of your mind. Otherwise, they wouldn't have put it in there at all. So when we open the book, we see exactly what it has to do with the kingship of Solomon. A lot. For one, it's lover's wisdom poetry arranged in this song. For another thing, Solomon was a royal botanist, and we see these allusions to tons and tons of plant imagery, which should place us in the Garden of Eden and also in the temple that Solomon built. Wine, oils, tents, vineyards, pastures, they all reveal themselves as the backdrop for this ancient love poem. Now, love poetry in the ancient world was not uncommon the Babylonians, the Egyptians, they all had their versions of the Song of Songs that give wisdom and insight into love and loving. But this one is different, as though it were infused with divine wisdom. As many scholars have come to point out, the characters within the poem, the man and the woman, are pretty distinct reflections of Adam and Eve. And so if Adam and Eve, then God and Israel. It would seem that the Song of Solomon is not just ancient love poetry, but the beautiful reflection and exaltation of God's love for his people. However, as some scholars have noted, this allegory, it breaks down pretty fast when you press into the text. Certainly, the Old Testament authors felt a passionate intimacy with their creator God, and the New Testament church is described as the Bride of Christ. But as we will see, you cannot draw exact lines between those entities and the man and the woman from the book. For example, the man constantly leaves the woman. That would be problematic for most historical Christian theologies. But the overarching themes of the book, how love is a passionate impetus and gives life and saves from death, those are all true of God, his snake crusher, and his relationship to his people. But what I really think the book of the Song of Solomon really shows us about the snake crusher is far more profound than simply God being in love with his people. And that is certainly true. I just think it's honestly way, way deeper than that. I think that since the book presents to us this almost alternate Adam and Eve who never sin, then the snake crusher will be this new Adam archetype for his bride. And by virtue of being the perfect Adam, the snake crusher Will reunite humanity with life. Let me tease this out a little bit. So, like always, we should re examine the Garden of Eden narrative. So, Adam. Adam is Hebrew for humanity, and Eve, Eve, is a Hebrew idiom for life. And so when Adam meets Eve, God is introducing humanity to the source of human life. But when Adam and Eve take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what's fractured in the universe is humanity's relationship to life and to God. The question becomes, throughout the Bible, how do we restore humanity's relationship back to life? Back to God? What would that even look like? Well, the Bible does present some answers, but one picture of what it looks like to be in life with God is the divine image. Let's jump forward a bit to Moses spending his days on the top of Mount Sinai. When he comes down, his face is glowing. (laughs) It's kind of weird if you're missing the references. The glowing face thing is referencing the Garden of Eden, and at the beginning of Exodus, Moses encounters a glowing tree, a symbol of the tree of life. So when Moses has his life restored back to God, he begins to glow. The priests also have these shiny glowing jewels that they wear to symbolize their life in God. It's also important to note that Adam and Eve, they're two halves of the divine image. And when their relationship is fractured, the divine image within humanity, it's not lost, but it is certainly marred. It's dimmed. It is not bright. It is not glowing. And that is how the biblical narrative presents the divine image throughout the text. The divine image is not perfect unless a perfect Adam meets a perfect Eve. And so, when we meet all of these glowing people, we should keep in mind that they are being fully restored... To their divine, image-bearing self. When life is restored back to God, then the full weight of the divine image shows through. And this is exactly what we see happening throughout the book of the Song of Solomon. The man and the woman, they're, they're perfectly in love, but they keep getting separated somehow. Whether the man goes off to battle or the woman falls asleep, the two can't seem to stay close to each other. But when they do come together, it's explosive. In, in a good way. It's, it's this explosion of passion, and intimacy, and life, and goodness. And as we will see later, it's compared to a fiery, glowing, burning... flame. So, when the book starts out, it starts out with the two of them meeting. The two characters, the man and the woman, are together in what would seem to be this... this garden, this vineyard, with all of these oils and wines and flowers. But then, the two are separated. And the woman spends her time adoring her husband while he's away. And while he's away, her love for him grows and deepens. So when they meet back up again in chapter four, the poetry becomes, well, erotic, sensual. I mean, it is love poetry. After all, they consummate their marriage, let's say that. It's, it is certain to make you blush, but then right away it fades out and they're separated again. And this time, the narrative follows the man who spends his poem adoring the woman. Then they're separated again, but when they come back together for the third time, they spend their time adoring each other in this kind of poetic dance of admiration. Finally, when we get to chapter 8, they're separated for just a short period of time, and here is a key passage where the author defines love for us. It's It's a super important and beautiful passage, not just for this book, but for the whole Bible. When they're reunited for the last time, they come together, and the book fades out, as the scene becomes fiery again. Let's say that. Since this book is so short, I thought we could spend some time looking at Song of Solomon chapter 8, where the author defines love. And so to unpack Songs 8, I thought I'd bring in my really good friend, Wesley Scott. Him and I, we've known each other for almost our entire lives, probably. (laughs) I don't know, maybe since we were teenagers. Uh, He's really good at picking apart Bible stuff, so... Wesley? Yeah, hey, thanks. Uh, So we're going to look at Song of Solomon 8, verses 6 and 7. This is a passage where the author defines love for us. Yeah, it's extraordinarily profound, and it gives us great insight into what it means that the snake crusher will restore the bride of God back to life. Mm. So take it away. Yeah, thanks. The passage says, place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. <laughs> it's it's so good okay so let's start up at the top so the seal thing what's up with that huh yeah so in the ancient biblical world a seal would signify who you represented so remember back in genesis 38 tamar has the seal of judah it was his identifier to say who had wronged tamar then in exodus we learn that the priests are to have seals of yahweh on their foreheads it tells people who they belong to oh so it was like whose image you were bearing exactly the lover here is desperate to represent the other out into the world. Hmm. And if you were to ask why they might want that, well, we get the answer in the very next line. The one about love and death? Yeah. So so love here is being compared to the most negative human experience. And just by learning to read Hebrew poetry, you can see that they are antitheses of each other. So the author is suggesting that love is the greatest, most positive human experience? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And more than that, the author is positing that love is the opposite of death. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Not life, like you might imagine. And they go on. They go on and they parallel love and jealousy. Jealousy? Isn't that like a, like a vice? Not something to be compared to love? <laughs> ah, yes, well, in the Bible, jealousy is not a vice. It, it's actually a virtue because it wasn't associated with dissension. It was associated with protection. It meant you were safe. And in this case, the lovers are claiming that the jealousy of the other person is saving them from death. It assures the other person that the grave will have no hold over them. That's really beautiful. Yeah, and it goes on to say how love is like the fire of God. God, which is another Jewish symbol to say that love is like the feeling you get when you enter into the temple, when you enter into the presence of God. Oh, and then that's why they talk about water next, because they're talking about fire. Yes, exactly. The next line talks about how this fire, the fire of love, cannot be overcome. Love is the fire of God that cannot be quenched by affliction. Okay, okay, okay. So so this makes a lot of of sense. The writer says, in effect, that they love the other person so much that they want to be their representative into the world because their character, their way of life has protected them from death and the grave, and then they tie together love and the presence of God. So what, then, does this last line mean? If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. You'd think it would say the opposite. Yeah, well, that is a difficult line to render into the English, and different translations will yield different results. But essentially, it means money can't buy love. Imagine, if you will, that there was a person who loved someone so much, but they weren't loved back. Womp womp. So in order to get the girl, the man sold everything he owned, put the money in her bank account, and tied a note to it that said, now you have to love me. That, the author says, would be despicable. (laughs) Right, 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 right. So it's saying love can't be, like, forced or stolen from someone, like wealth could. Instead, love has to be given freely by someone. Exactly. Which is what brings us to the snake crusher. The Messiah will come and freely give this love to all who are willing to accept it. This act of giving love pins him into this position as being an alternate perfect Adam. Giving love to a perfect Eve. Humanity creating life through love. But not just any old human person. Rather, this is the perfect snake crusher you've been talking about, Austin. He will come to give love. And through that love, life will be born. <laughs> Gee. Honestly, I can't even think of a better way to end it. Thanks so much, Wesley, for coming on and helping us understand this. Thanks to those of you who have tuned in. This was Bible Unbound, and we will see you next week.